Today on Golden Girls Sports, Bull Durham meets Blanche Devereaux as we devote all of our attention to the remarkable Rue McClanahan. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken. Where's Charlie? premiered on October 19th, 1991, the fifth episode of the show's seventh and final season. It was written by Gail Parent and Jim Vallely and directed by Lex Passaris. Terry Hughes who directed most of the show's first 120 episodes, left after season five and was replaced by Matthew Diamond. He directed most of season six before being replaced by Pissaris, who was the assistant director for over 70 episodes prior to taking over the big chair. The A story in Where's Charlie is about Rose worrying that her deceased husband Charlie doesn't approve of her dating her longtime boyfriend Miles. The main reasons she thinks that are A, a combination of science seen in a bowl of fruit salad, and B, Sophia pretending to spiritually channel Charlie so that she can make some quick cash off of gullible Rose. Meanwhile, Dorothy is writing a letter to her deceased father, Sal, so she can let go of some lingering feelings she never got out while he was alive. Things are a little weird. And where's Blanche? Well, she's taken a slumping baseball player named Stevie under her wing and is helping him refine his game by giving him love, vitamins, and some of her underwear. You better be getting to bed, darling. You're in training. Oh, wait a minute. Almost forgot. I want you to put this lingerie on under your uniform for batting practice. I know you said you'd help my game, but do you think this will work? Yes. <laughs> I can't wear this. Do you have any idea the kind of teasing that goes on in a locker room? Yes. <laughs> Now, look, you have to discover the sensuality of baseball. There are just many, many, many similarities between baseball and making love. (laughs) The mental preparation, the rush of adrenaline, the unspecified duration of the game. (laughs) And you should hear the cheers coming from Blanche's room on Old Timer's Day. (laughs) Later at the batting cage, Stevie tells Blanche that the lingerie is really working, and he's hitting 300 again. In fact, he's hitting so well that a team from Japan has offered him a contract, and like all baseball players before him, it's time to move on. Blanche accepts their breakup with typical grace, smacking the heck out of the ball without even wearing underwear. Back at the house, Blanche is just getting over Stevie when he shows up, in full drag, blue satin dress, stockings, heels, and earrings. He's batting 310 now, and he feels better about himself than ever. I don't have to leave the country. With you coaching me, I can make the big leagues right here. And we'll still have each other. What do you say we go out and celebrate, huh? I'm sorry, Stevie, but I cannot go out with you tonight. It's the dress, isn't it? But Blanche cannot forgive him that easily for dumping her just the day before. So she dumps him this time. And yes, it was about the dress. As Sophia points out herself, Blanche's story in Where's Charlie is a parody of the movie Bull Durham, which was released in theaters in 1987 and was written and directed by former minor league baseball player Ron Shelton. As a first-time director, and because sports movies are considered box office poison, Shelton was only able to secure a budget of $7 million. But the movie made over $50 million during its initial run 
and Shelton went on to a long directing career making even more sports movies like Tin Cup, Cobb, and White Men Can't Jump. Bull Durham stars Susan Sarandon as Annie Savoy, a local woman who worships the Church of Baseball and who takes it upon herself to shepherd the development of Bull's rookie pitching phenom, Ebby Calvin Nuke Lelouch, played by Sarandon's later real-life partner, Tim Robbins. At the same time, team management brings in their own mentor for Nuke in the form of Kevin Costner's minor league lifer, Crash Davis. So while Annie teaches Nuke that wearing lingerie under his uniform can help his pitching, Crash teaches him about making it to the show and why you should never shake off your catcher's signals. Eventually, Nuke pitches so well that he gets called up to the majors, leaving Annie and Crash to address their own attraction and find happiness with each other. With three scenes total, the baseball subplot in Where's Charlie doesn't follow the movie's plot exactly. The famous lingerie scene in Bull Durham happens about halfway through the movie, as opposed to the first time we see Stevie in The Golden Girls. And instead of having two separate characters of a pitcher and a catcher, Stevie is kind of a combination of both Costner's Crash and Robin's Nuke, since he's a veteran hitter that needs tutor. Stevie was played by actor Tim Thomerson, who's known for his signature shock of fluffy blonde hair and for having a long career in wisecracking tough guy roles. After about a decade of co-starring roles and walk-on parts, Thomerson embraced B-movies like the Trancers series, in which he has starred as Jack Death, zombie hunter from the 23rd century. He was in six of the seven Trancers films, and one of his co-stars in the first three was Helen Hunt. Thomerson, who was born in the San Diego area of California and spent part of his childhood in Hawaii, started out as a stand-up comedian before shifting into acting full-time. That sense of humor has served him well over his career. He's been in some big movies like Iron Eagle, Near Dark, Uncommon Valor, and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but his claim to fame is in movies with titles like Sasquatch Mountain, Die Watching, and Doll Man, in which he plays an intergalactic cop that's just 13 inches tall. He's also been in about a million TV shows like St. Elsewhere, Baywatch, Murder, She Wrote, Xena, and Shameless. And in 1983, he played a gender-switching space garbage collector in the show Quark. Uh, And if you played Saints Row 3, you might know him as the voice of Cyrus Temple. For his role in The Golden Girls, Thomerson said he made the choice to have Stevie retain his macho athlete walk, even when in drag, because he thought it would be funnier that way. He must have been right because it got laughs from a tough audience named B. Arthur. Quote, B was kind of a tough person to make laugh, but the moment she opened the door and got a look at me, she would lose it. Every time. B didn't break that often, so I knew it meant that the gag was working. And then, of course, it was infectious, and I'd start laughing too. It took maybe four takes to get it right, but it was great because our laughing really loosened up the audience too. And then that frees you up as an actor because now you've broken that fourth wall and everybody's in on the gag. End quote. You can see Arthur genuinely laughing when you watch this scene today in reruns. Estelle Getty, too, seems like she's really breaking up as this tough guy stands in their living room in his cocktail dress. And like Joe Rigobudo and other Golden Girls guest stars, Thomerson says he still gets recognized today 30 years later after only being on one episode. On the other side of the story, Rue enjoyed playing the Susan Sarandon role in the satire, especially the Annie Savoy-style off-the-shoulder sweater she got to wear. She practiced batting with stage manager Kent Zbornak. Yes, Zbornak, we'll talk about him later. So that she could make Blanche's statement hit when she needed to. Quote, I was going to have to swing convincingly and really whack that thing. And it turns out I did hit the damn thing on the very first take. I didn't hit it very hard. I think it would have only been a base hit, but it was a real victory for me. End quote. 
That might have been one small victory for McClanahan in a long career packed with many of them. In 1969, Norman Lear, then a screenwriter looking to get into television production, saw a one-act play in New York City called The Golden Fleece. He was so impressed by the lead actress's performance that he approached her at a post-show party and introduced himself. Your performance was amazing. I hope I'll be able to hire you someday, he told Rue McClanahan. Three years later, Lear would make good on his wish, first casting McClanahan in an episode of All in the Family, and then as Vivian, the whimsical best friend of B. Arthur's title character in All in the Family's spin-off Maud. But well before that, McClanahan had spent a lifetime on stage, performing both to satisfy her insatiable appetite for the theater and to make ends meet for her and her son as they moved where the business took them. The list of stage productions McClanahan performed in includes, but is not limited to, Present Laughter, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Death of a Salesman, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Romeo and Juliet, The Sound of Music, Three Penny Opera, Nonsense, Annie, and Wicked. The list of men in her life is equally as long. As Rue would say herself in her book, cheekily entitled My First Five Husbands and the Ones That Got Away, quote, Blanche and I both have a lot of love to give, and I don't just mean in bed. She and I do share a genuine enjoyment of men and of adventure. I loved her matter-of-fact acceptance of that part of herself, end quote. She is the total romantic, the total romantic. But then comes the light of day and she thinks, holy God, what have I done here, you know? And that's the end. It's very quick and it's very clean. But she loves playing the bride. She was born on February 21st, 1934 in Helton, Oklahoma, to Runell and Bill McClanahan. Her full name was Eddie Rue, thanks to her Aunt Winona, who wanted to choose the name of her sister's firstborn and who, in turn, had her firstborn named by Rue's mother. Eddie Rue would eventually drop the Eddie for show business, but she was known by that and other names by friends, depending on when and where she met them throughout her life. Born with white blonde hair, she was called Frosty by some in Heldon, including her father, she was also called Baby Rue by her longtime friend Lenny Reynolds and Rusie by Betty White. Rue's sister Melinda was born five years later, and the family traveled to Durant, Oklahoma, Lafayette, Louisiana, and Houston, Texas, as Bill sought more stable contracting work. All the while, Rue studied ballet and piano and performed in school and church plays. After Bill's stint in the Army came to an end, they settled back in Oklahoma in a town called Ardmore when Rue was a teen but a family trip to New York in 1949 sealed her fate forever. She saw Joe DiMaggio hit a home run and she walked through Greenwich Village. But after seeing Ray Bolger on Broadway in, ironically for us today, a show called Where's Charlie, she knew the big city would be her home. At 15, she was already teaching dance classes and as a senior in high school, became the official owner of the Oklahoma Dancing Academy at Ardmore, where she taught students from toddler age to her own age. She choreographed recitals and co-directed local variety shows, sometimes giving her sister Melinda the lead roles. At a summer stock troupe in Michigan, Rue met Norman Hartweg, a young actor who had his heart broken by Melinda. Norman would become one of Rue's six husbands, and although their marriage didn't last, they would be lifelong friends and confidants during their most difficult times. Rue continued to study performing in all forms of dance while majoring in drama at the University of Tulsa on a full scholarship. She graduated cum laude from UT and, together with Norman Hartweg, moved to New York and attended acting classes with famed teacher Uta Hagen. While working as a clerk, 
Rue enrolled in more dance classes and took an apartment on the Upper West Side, splitting the $97 a month rent with a girlfriend. There was one thing that my parents didn't quite prepare me for, and that was that life out there in the real world can be very rough and that there can be people out there you can't trust and you have to be on your guard. I was not on my guard and I didn't expect the roughness. So when I moved to New York, I was in tears a lot of the time. Her friendship with Norman grew closer, but he wouldn't be her first husband. That would be Tom Bish, a fellow actor, singer, and musician at the Erie Playhouse in Pennsylvania, where he and Rue worked together in a production of Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter in the summer of 1957. Their attraction wasn't immediate, but they started hanging out after shows and had a full-fledged fling as her stage credits piled up. Inherit the Wind, The Miser, and The Desk Set were among the shows she started. When Rue learned that she was pregnant, she and Tom agreed to get married in a brief conversation they had as they crossed the street in Erie. Rue had misgivings and still had feelings for Norman Hartwig, but in the late 1950s and with a younger sister already married and pregnant, a wedding seemed like the next mostly logical step. Back in Ardmore with her family, Rue gave birth to her son, Mark, in October of 1958. Tom Bish was in Texas that night performing in a play and didn't seem to be in any particular rush to see the child being born. When he finally did show up at the hospital almost two days later, after a call from the doctor, Rue noticed he wasn't wearing his wedding band. Rue sent Tom pictures of their newborn son, but never received responses. That sealed it for her, and she began divorce proceedings from her parents' house in Ardmore. Tom Bish put up no custody fight, and Rue went back to teaching dance while still harboring a burning desire to return to New York. Until Norman Hartwig arrived in Ardmore on Christmas leave from the Army. He and Rue reconnected in person for the first time in years, and with her divorce from Tom Bish still not final, they drove to Denver to get married in October of 1959. But life as a housewife and mother on an army base turned into a real-life soap opera, as Rue left Norman for one of his military buddies and ran off to California. That relationship didn't last long either. But she stayed in California, and after short stints as a nude art model and a singing waitress, she got a role in Noel Coward's present laughter at the Pasadena Playhouse. Her work there netted her a scholarship for a full year at the Playhouse, which meant steady work, but not a ticket back to New York. Slowly, more stage roles trickled in. Her first TV experience was playing a waitress on the show Malibu Run in 1960, and as an extra on the People's Court. After a performance of Eugene O'Neill's Before Breakfast, she met with a pair of TV producers who told her that she had no future in television. Rue mentioned this when she won her Emmy in 1987. Oops. There was a recurring pattern in Rue's life that lasted almost two decades. She would win a role, get rave reviews, and then something would happen. The show would close, a roommate would leave, or a man would disrupt things, leaving Rue scrambling to find work and housing for her and Mark. Although she would finally be offered the role of Blanche Dubois in A Streetcar Named Desire at the Playhouse, her home life was a mess, and she was forced to turn it down. She and Norman decided to try and reconcile, and she returned to Denver, where she quickly got pregnant again. But with her career in a place she didn't want, a first child younger than two, and a marriage still very much on the rocks, Rue made the painful decision to have an illegal abortion in Tijuana. The home turmoil continued, and aside from a couple of non-paying independent film jobs, Rue spent the next few years waitressing in various establishments. Back in L.A. and still married but estranged with the recently discharged Norman, 
Rue got back on stage in The Bad Seed and The Crawling Arnold Review. Although a director friend of Rue's got Norman a role in an independent movie, he was all but ready to drop out of society altogether. The marriage was annulled, but Norman would not be gone from Rue's life forever. You can read more about him in The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, where he plays a pretty key role. While working as a secretary for the regional manager of a pharmaceutical company in the early 60s, Rue got a visit from a director friend who encouraged her to return to New York. Not that it took much convincing. She co-starred in an off-Broadway production of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, and it was there that she would meet husband number three. In her book, she refers to him only as, quote, the Italian, but his real name was Peter DeMeo, and he was an actor known for an uncanny impersonation of Humphrey Bogart that won him jobs for decades. He may have been killer as Bogey, but as a husband, Peter was emotionally abusive towards Rue and Mark throughout the entirety of their seven-year marriage. But after two divorces already, Rue was determined to make this one stick. In the mid-1960s, husband and wife were hired at separate playhouses for the summer, Rue at the Hampton Playhouse in New Jersey and Peter at a playhouse in Minnesota. After a fight the two had at a cast party, Hampton offered to hire Peter for the next season if it meant keeping Rue happy. Unfortunately, the marriage wasn't. But she kept working in co-starring roles in New York and New Jersey throughout 1966. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum, where she sewed her own costume, and The Sound of Music. Finally, a lead came along, in a very controversial play we spoke about way back in episode one of this podcast. Macbird was a satire, written by Barbara Garson, that turned Shakespeare's tragedy Macbeth into a not-at-all-veiled commentary on the Kennedy assassination. Stacey Keach played Macbird, the play's stand-in for Lyndon Johnson, who helps plot the death of King John Ken O'Dunk, played by William Devane as the play's JFK. Garson admitted to Rue that she hadn't put a lot of thought into the role of Lady McBird, who was both necessary for the parody and as a proxy for First Lady Lady Bird Johnson. So Rue took the role and ran with it, giving Lady McBird a thick Texas accent and a ton of jokes. McBird was a hot play in the summer of 1967 and got good reviews, earning it a spot at the historic Circle in the Square Theater. Then it was on to Hartford, Connecticut, where she and Peter appeared in Three Penny Opera and Hay Fever, but soon Broadway called, as Rue got a pivotal role in the comedy Jimmy Shine, which starred Hollywood's hottest actor at the time, Dustin Hoffman. A year later came the Golden Fleece and that fateful meeting with Norman Lear. She kept getting great reviews, including appearing in a Faces Made for the Stage feature in the New York Times, and won the Obie Award for Best Actress from the Village Voice for her work in the Golden Fleece. In 1971, Rue entered the world of actual soap operas, getting cast in NBC's Another World. She played a nanny who slowly poisoned her live-in family's wife because she was in love with the husband. Insert dramatic organ music here. Rue called it, quote, the most stultifyingly boring work I've ever done, end quote, and wasn't sure if her character was sent to jail or the psych ward after her year on the show. From there, she also did soaps on CBS and ABC, as well as commercials for Absorbing Jr. and Playtex's I Can't Believe It's a Girdle. That is a real thing. Go look it up. But at home, Rue and Mark did the best they could to live under painful conditions with Peter. Finally, after a group therapy session in which she recounted physical abuse Peter had inflicted upon them, she made the decision to file for divorce and kick Peter out. Rue had bought a house in Kloster, New Jersey, but Mark, who had traveled with his mother between New York, L.A., Oklahoma, and elsewhere his entire life, asked to return to Ardmore to live with his grandparents for a while. 
Newly single again, and with her son miles away, Rue began a relationship with actor Brad Davis, who would become known for his work in the film Midnight Express. It didn't last long, but he became a longtime friend of Rue's as well. She was doing both the play Sticks and Bones on Broadway and a PBS movie of Lanford Wilson's The Rhymers of Eldridge in 1971 when she got a call from Norman Lear that a role had been found for her on All in the Family. Rue and Vincent Gardenia, who she had worked with at the Hampton Playhouse in New Jersey years earlier, would play swingers, who were mistakenly invited to the Bunker's house for dinner. During rehearsals for the episode, Lear let Rue know that they were thinking of recasting the role of Vivian on Maud, which was also rehearsing on a nearby soundstage. She would prep for both All in the Family and Maud while also still in the company for Sticks and Bones. When the dust settled after a few weeks, she was well on her way to becoming Maud's best friend, setting up a real-life friendship with B. Arthur. Quote, B and I clicked from the start. She appreciated my talent, and I learned from her daring choices. I was never intimidated, but B threw the fear of God into a lot of people. She abode by a strict work ethic and brooked no fools, but she genuinely appreciated the talents of her co-workers, particularly her writers and directors. She was a sharp wit, which definitely did slice and dice someone once in a while, but not everyone saw the B. Arthur I came to know over the years. End quote. Rue always appreciated how B. showed her kindness when her mother passed away during the early days of Maud. After, by her count, eight off-Broadway plays, five on-Broadway, one in England, four in New Jersey, three movies, three soap operas, two years of summer stock, and a bunch of other random roles, Rue moved to Los Angeles to become a regular on Maud. Vivian's character changed over those first few episodes, from older and quieter to younger and sexier, but hers was an important role, with Vivian countering the combative and politically-minded Maud with something a little lighter and sweeter. I think I'd better stand up for my friend Maud right now and say that she is very likable, even if she happens to be a little loud and domineering and abrasive. And Stop helping, Vivian! <laughs> and jealous. Now, come on, Vivian. I do not have a jealous bone in my body. Yes, you do, Maud. You're jealous of my relationship with Professor Elliot. How dare you call me jealous? Well, you're obviously jealous. You're green with jealousy. Absolutely green. If I'm green, it's because of this crummy crab meat sauce. No, I'm sorry, Vivian. I didn't mean that. I, I love the sauce. You do? Well, I start out with mayonnaise and a little dry... <laughs> Who cares, Vivian? Who cares? Rue loved the experience of learning not only from Arthur and her co-stars, but Lear as well. He became such a comforting presence in her life that when she was gravely injured and bleeding after an accident at home with a glass door, the first person she called, while Mark called the paramedics, was Norman Lear. During her Maud years, Rue met husband number four. Gus Fisher started out as an actor, but eventually found his way into real estate. Rue refers to him only as, quote, the Greek in her book, and their marriage would eventually go the way of her union with the, quote, Italian. Rue and Gus had a big Greek wedding in 1975, which featured singing and dancing by B. Arthur and Norman Lear and a custom dress designed by Maud's costume designer. But from their honeymoon, Rue felt she had made a mistake, getting married to silence her internal panic over being alone. Gus was the life of the party, getting along great with Arthur and Rue's father, Bill. But Rue felt he used her celebrity to raise his own profile, and he chafed at her relationship with Norman Hartwig, her old ex-husband and current friend who was now paralyzed thanks to a very severe car accident. Rue and Gus were divorced in 1979, just after three years of marriage. 
She would later write that he, quote, juiced her like a ripe tomato in the divorce, including demanding to keep some wedding gifts, which Rue gladly gave over, except for a Cuisinart she received from Norman Leaf. Maud ended in 1978, with Arthur deciding to move on after the character left Westchester, New York, to become a congresswoman. But Lear had conceived of a show idea that would feature McClanahan in her first starring television role. Apple Pie was based on a play Lear had worked on. Rue would star as a Depression-era mom living in Kansas City with veteran actor Jack Guilford as her blind grandfather and a rascally con man played by Dabney Coleman. The show only aired two episodes before ABC's new leadership pulled the plug on. She did a couple of TV movies, including The Great American Traffic Jam, and the requisite love boat and Fantasy Island guest spots every actor did in the late 70s and early 80s. In 1982, she was cast in Mama's Family, as the Carol Burnett show spinoff was just getting off the ground. The role of Aunt Fran was sold to Rue as a feisty foil for Vicki Lawrence's title character. Instead, the character was made into a timid pushover, and Rue was less than thrilled. Aunt Fran was eventually written out of the show, having choked to death on a chicken bone. By her own admission, Rue did not mourn her passing. At least that was where she first worked with Betty White, who had guest starred as Mama's sister Ellen during its first season. In 1984, after surviving a scary gallbladder operation that adversely affected her breathing, Rue reconnected with another old beau from her youth. Tom Keel was a recently divorced, easygoing Texas guy who worked for the phone company, and his down-to-earth personality was the exact opposite of Rue's perpetually restless spirit. Nevertheless, the former high school sweethearts were married, making him husband number five for her, and he moved his life to L.A. Within a year, though, both of them realized that their differences were too much to overcome, and the marriage ended. As with Norman Hartweg, Rue and Tom would remain friends for years. After a couple more love boats and guest spots on Charles in Charge and Give Me a Break, Rue's agent sent her a script for a new show called The Golden Girls. We've already discussed the Blanche Rose Betty White Rue McClanahan switch in our Betty White feature episode. Rue connected with the character of Blanche Devereaux from the minute she read the pilot script and was disappointed to be offered the role of Rose, recalling the sad fate of poor old Aunt Fran. After reading the part of Rose, as she was asked to in the audition, director Jay Sandrich asked Rue to try Blanche's part even though she hadn't prepared for it. Little did Sandrich know that Rue had all but memorized that role too. So she stepped out of the room and re-entered it in full Blanche Devereaux mode, confirming Sandwich's hunch. It was also Rue who convinced B. Arthur to sign on to the Golden Girls. The two hadn't stayed close since the end of Maud, but Rue called her anyway, assuring B. that she and Betty White wouldn't be reheating their old leftovers on this new show. And with Estelle Getty already cast, the foursome was complete. She based the character of Blanche Devereaux on Gone with the Wind star Vivian Lee or at least a person who wanted to be Vivian Lee. At first, she was discouraged by Sandwich to do a thick southern accent, but he only directed the pilot, and when Rue approached producers Paul Junger, Witt, and Tony Thomas about changing Blanche's voice, they gave her the go-ahead to follow her instincts. Rue loved her castmates, and the feeling was mutual. She admired Arthur's work ethic and talent, and had a blast joking and playing games with White on set, and helped Getty get through her crippling bouts of performance anxiety. In each of the first four seasons, all four Golden Girls were nominated for Emmys. Rue won Best Lead Actress in a Comedy Series at the 1987 Emmys, one year after White won, and one year before Arthur and Getty each won their categories. It was a personal victory to finally have her work acknowledged, 
even though presenter Howie Mandel announced her as Rue McCallaghan. So let's talk about slut shaming for a minute. Although a fairly recent concept, punishing or socially stigmatizing a woman because she doesn't conform to what we think are society's sexual conventions isn't a new practice. Slut shaming might not have been labeled in 1985, but Blanche Devereaux may as well have been the spokeswoman for it, enduring seven years of nonstop insults from her friends because of the many male suitors she entertained after the death of her beloved husband, George. She was called, among other things, a Jezebel, a tramp, an animal, a slut, a backstabbing slut, slut puppy, a 50-year-old mattress, and my wife's favorite, Sheena, queen of the slut people. McClanahan never saw it as shaming. For one, the characters all had a genuine love for each other, which is where all of their insults came from. Secondly, she felt that Blanche was looking for love, not sex, and that she had never fully recovered from the loss of her husband. Rue also frequently said that for all of Blanche's talk, she got lucky less often than either Rose or Sophia did during the course of the show. In her book, she wrote, quote, I decided right away that Blanche would laugh whenever Sophia shot a poisoned arrow her way. One of the best instincts I had in creating Blanche's character was that choice to see Sophia as a darling old thing whose barbs were endearing, not hurtful. After all, putting up with that sort of thing was, as Blanche breezily put it, quote, the curse of every devastatingly beautiful woman, end quote. More than any other character, Blanche would never let someone else dictate how she would live her life. And if you didn't like it, it just meant that you were either jealous or a dirty Yankee. I will admit that when I watched the show as a kid, I thought Blanche was the least funny of the four. Not that she wasn't funny. Rue's delivery is as spot on as any of them. It's just that her jokes weren't for me or really any other younger viewer. I'm pretty sure Blanche was my dad's favorite, though. Rewatching the show as an adult, what strikes me isn't her sexual liberation, which we already knew about, but the sadness within the character. Blanche often shares her regrets about being a distant, selfish mother, and several scenes and episodes play off of that aspect of her life. She always seems to be at odds with one of her two daughters, and at least three episodes involve Blanche taking an active role in a grandchild's upbringing as a way to make up for lost time with her own kids. And that's besides the constant shifting rivalries between Blanche and her sisters, Charmaine and Virginia, that were present from the show's second episode onward. She's also extremely unaccepting of her brother Clayton's homosexuality, as shown in the two episodes in which he comes by the house in the form of actor Monty Markham. Blanche also isn't shy about a preference for the world to return to the values of the Old South, the real Old South, as in pre-Civil War South. These qualities are way less endearing than anything involving Blanche's sexual appetite. But like Rose's competitiveness, or Dorothy's need for validation, or Sophia's gallows humor, it's those dark places that make the Golden Girls seem like real people, and not just characters on a well-lit TV show. After seven seasons together, B. Arthur declined to sign on for another season, and the Golden Girls came to an end. Rue wasn't enamored with the idea of a spin-off series set in a hotel, but her suggestion of replacing Dorothy with a new roommate wasn't feasible with the show just beginning its run in syndication. Her trepidation with the Golden Palace only grew, when she and the rest of the cast learned that A, the show wouldn't air on Saturday nights as the Golden Girls had, and B, it would be on CBS, not NBC. So with little promotion and mostly lackluster stories, the show didn't get much traction and after one season was not picked up for renewal. She followed up the Golden Palace with a production of Nonsense for A&E. Shortly after that, 
Norman Hartweg, the best friend and ex-husband with whom she had co-written the play Oedipus Schmedipus, had passed away at his home. Rue performed in Anne Mira's afterplay in New York and the plays Harvey and Lettuce and Lovage in London. She didn't have many feature film roles over the years, but she did take part in big movies like They Might Be Giants with George C. Scott, Out to Sea with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, and Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, in which she played the blind, disfigured biology teacher instructing new roughnecks on how to kill the alien bug menace. True, but before you let that go to your head, take the example of the arachnids, a highly evolved insect society. By human standards, they are relatively stupid. But their evolution stretches over millions of years. And now, take this. they can colonize planets by hurling their spore into space. Rue wasn't a fan of the hours of makeup the role required, but called the sci-fi action movie a real trip. Back in New York in the late 1990s, during rehearsals for the show Millions of Miles, Rue met a man that was friends with the director. When introduced, the man mentioned not the Golden Girls, but Dylan a play Rue had done some 25 years earlier in which she had gotten rave reviews, including from writer Dylan Thomas, who was the subject of the play. Morrow Wilson would become Rue McClanahan's sixth and final husband. They got engaged at Sardi's, the famous New York theater restaurant, but the news wasn't all joyous. Rue had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Her doctor said that it was due to hormone replacements that she had been taking for 17 years and that it was already into stage two. On Christmas Day of 1997, Rue and Morrow were married at the Waldorf Astoria, while Rue was still undergoing chemotherapy treatments and had lost her hair. The cancer was treated with a lumpectomy, and Rue went right back to what she did best, with guest spots on a ton of shows and recurring roles on Touched by an Angel, Safe Harbor, and Logo's Sorted Lives, which was her final series. For eight months in 2006, she played Madame Morrible in the smash hit Broadway production of Wicked, and in 2009, she guested on an episode of Law and & Order in which she played a woman that had an affair with JFK and whose son may have, like, killed a bunch of people. That same year, she had heart bypass surgery, which led to a stroke, and she was forced to cancel a gala in her honor at the Castro Theater in San Francisco. She suffered another stroke on June 3, 2010, and died at New York Presbyterian Hospital. She was 76. In 2017 a restaurant opened in the Washington Heights section of Manhattan. Rue LaRue is co-owned by Rue's son, Mark Bish, and Michael LaRue, who befriended the actress after meeting her at a PETA event in 2001. It functions not just as a place to eat, but as a museum honoring Rue's life and career. On display are costumes from the show, which Rue negotiated that she could keep, as well as photos and memorabilia, and her 1987 Emmy Award, all curated by LaRue, who is also the executor of her estate. The menu includes custom Golden Girls-themed dishes from the head chef and local bakeries, and some items made from recipes from the actresses themselves, like Betty White's Angel Food Cake, B. Arthur's Chutney, and Estelle Getty's Basil Mayo BLT. In her memoir, Rue gives a lot of credit to St. Dymphna, the patroness of insanity, for altering her career at different times. But it's really us who are the lucky ones. If not for her talent and dogged determination to never give up her acting dreams no matter where she was, she never would have put on that performance that so impressed Norman Lear back in 1969. If not for that, only smaller theater crowds would have been able to experience Rue's delicious verve and sense of humor, 
instead of the millions and millions sitting at home in front of their televisions, she was way more than just Blanche Devereaux. But sometimes, even just that one role seemed like more fun than we deserved. Where's Charlie is a typical example of an episode from the final season of The Golden Girls. The story is maybe a little bit too fanciful, even for a sitcom, and the conflict between the girls, in this case Sophia and Rose, feels a little forced. The Bull Durham parody might only last a couple of scenes, but it's one of the funniest parts of the episode. Thomerson is perfect for the role of the jock that embraces his feminine side while also increasing his batting average. And of course, we get Rue McClanahan taking an established role and putting her own signature spin on it, something she did over and over again in her great career. Next time on Golden Girls Sports, we wrap up our first season with more football, as Dorothy tutors a star quarterback who also happens to be Spider-Man. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening. <laughs>